Yeah. Well, it's a new um, season. So. I, I guess where did we let off last year? You know, last year was pretty much looking the election of the U.S. And yeah. Now it's uh, it's President Joe Biden. Um, that's pretty much firm there, and we have the impeachment going on right now. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> impeaching a, a president who's not sitting. Oh, sorry. Yeah, impeaching a non-sitting president. Yeah. I guess in the hopes that he doesn't go for election again. I at the end of the day, I could see. I could see Trump trying to run on his own party, like mm. the Trump party or something like that, or make America a great party. Please don't let that happen. But I can't see the Republicans as, because they are now a divided house or a divided party, I can't see them banding together to support him again. Yeah. I can't see that happening in four years. I could see someone like Trump coming up who probably has the some of the some of the ideas tempered some of the, some of the ideas that have been tempered but also with a, a much better personality mm. i could see that happening but i can't see trump coming back again well he'd be so old he'd be like 80 something years yeah, old yeah i know and that was the core argument against biden is that biden is now the oldest sitting president of the united states of america uh, <laughs> it's uh it's a bit hilarious i i guess and he's just, and but what is it, Biden just had a phone call with uh, China and told them knock it off, pretty yeah, much. But like we've seen, like why why is it now so special now that he's in in authority, he's in charge? Yeah. Um, you know, he had his chance when he was vice president yeah, on, what, on Obama, and they were stealing stuff from. I guess there, you know there was IP concerns that yeah. were, that, that uh, Obama brought up against. Well, China. What, what was it? Joe Biden was put in charge of curing cancer, if you remember. Oh, yeah. It was his uh, moonshot. Okay. What happened with that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, like, do do you see things more positive or looking up or going on a decline? I I think there's a lot of doom and gloom, especially on the right side of politics in the social media sphere. But honestly, it's kind of just a, it's going, it's going on. Like, Mm -hmm. it's continuing on as normal. Yeah. I don't think that we should be looking at politics or our politicians as these godlike figures or saviors almost that they're going to solve the problems no. i think that's a bit of a mistake that a lot of a lot of people on the right i think in america made with trump is that they looked at him kind of as this um he's going to fix all the problems and it's actually gone to the end of his term and he hasn't fixed a lot of problems they've kind of continued on as normal yeah yeah like he promised to fix the budget and we're now 26 trillion dollars in debt but if you so, didn't have that coronavirus towards in 2020, yeah, you, what like, could have happened? What could have happened? That that's always the what if, yeah. yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, that is what happened, and I think he kind like the American American government kind of bungled it. A yeah. lot actually, and this is this isn't just a slight on the American government. Every single country across the planet has bungled it. Really bungled it? Yeah, I think so. Why? <laughs> um, how do you, sorry? How do you mean? Had it been wise and why they bungled it? Yeah, what did it bungle? I'd probably say I'd probably say they bungled the bungled the response of how of how to deal with a crisis like this. Yeah, yeah. If we look around, every single country is scrabbling to try and try and solve this, and they aren't able to solve the problem. Like, can you can you point to a country that has actually got a good handle of the coronavirus? I'd say, I'd say Australia is doing fairly well. But West, but Victoria's just gone into lockdown again. Yeah. So, oh, that's interesting because you know Victoria, mm. 
if you look at the news that's coming out and you talk to the people outside Victoria, they all look down on it. Oh, and yeah. Like, and like, this is like the redheaded cousin. Exactly, exactly. Goes from open to Closed. stage four lockdown. So everything's locked down. Yeah. You can't go out, you know, within a certain radius of your house. Yeah. And, and the police are hounding you. Five kilometers and radius, yeah. This repeats back and forth yeah. for like, this is happened what? This is the third time? Uh, third or fourth, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you had the bungle where Victoria had, was it the old age care? Yeah, that's right. Yep. So yeah. that also, similar to New York in terms mm. of, you will take these guys back. Well, old age homes aren't They're designed the, for quarantine. No. They are communal living. Yeah. But if you talk to the people inside Melbourne, mm. um, they would think that, you know, the premier is doing a good job, which is that's, very interesting. That's the weird, that is the weird thing. And I, I don't understand how they can look at, the premier and go he's doing a good job because the decisions that he and and his uh not cabinet um what 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 are they on state on the state level what are they called are they called the um well he still has a cabinet it is, it is the cabinet yeah he still has his cap- like the minister like mm, i don't he establishes know. his own government and the all yeah, state departments okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll call the, so the state government that's making the decisions they're making decisions i think that are in not in the best interest of victorians mm. and what's actually happening is the rest of australia is going to have to pick up the bill because they've trashed because the state government tra- has now trashed the economy <laughs> that's what that's what's happening right now mm. uh like i would argue why have we good example is what one decision they just made you mentioned the um age age care homes uh the Australian Open. I, I enjoy. I enjoy tennis. I enjoy watching tennis. But I would ar- argue we should not be have. We should not have opened the doors up. Well, Victoria should not have opened the doors up to host a tennis tournament when they haven't got a good handle of the coronavirus. And we've actually seen the outcome of that, where you've got uh, one or two cases, and you've got international travel as well. So you've got you've got these cases coming in, and they aren't able to properly handle them. Mm. And I think again. I don't know. I don't know myself how to run a hotel quarantine, but it sound but it sounds like you've got some states such as Queensland and Vic, and sorry Queensland and New South Wales that are, while they're not doing a perfect um, perfect job, they're doing a better job. So, yeah, yeah. I think, and this is sort of coming out from where I'm reading. I'm preparing for like the fourth episode after mm. this, which is about crisis in government is that people actually want a strong response yeah because they weigh that the strong response will defeat the crisis yeah and look i'm happy to get and, and they'll be like oh we're facing crisis mm. i want to give up some of my freedom for yeah. security and that is that is the push and pull between freedom and security it's and it's a, it's, a, it's actually a worthwhile debate to have as to how much freedom should you give up to be secure and how much security would you give up to be free, yeah. So it's it's a, it's a it's quite a compelling argument to actually get into. Yeah, yeah. All right. I, I guess uh, we're happy to move on. To yeah. Back, otherwise, off, otherwise, off the topic at topic at hand. Yeah. Well, it's a new year, new pod, new, new season. But you know, I, I'm looking forward to this season. I've mm. got um, MH17 coming up. So the the aircraft that got downed in the Ukraine. Oh yeah. I've that's got right. uh, a two part episode on uh, smartest kids in the world. So based off the Amanda Ripley's book, um, I was trying to look at. Uh, how we do education and how mm. we do education well. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I'm looking at the crisis of Leviathan. So if for everything that goes along, for every every crisis, our government gets bigger. So that's mm. the big government yep. thing. 
not large government, but big government. Like in terms of its authority, it's just permeating everywhere. So, and you know, I'll, I'll think of some other things, and I'm happy for listeners to send some emails to me to get some ideas. And then I guess you got an idea of yourself, mm, maybe. Um, Chipping away at yeah yeah. <laughs> What's the email address by the way? Oh, they should send uh, the fire in a desert at gmail dot com. Cool. So. All right, so we will start off uh, the podcast. All right. So if I ask you, Pat, what would you expect on impressions of someone who escapes from an oppressive country like North Korea, and they come over to a Western country like North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand? You know, a guy who escapes from the the, the prison camps of North Korea yeah. manages to make one, to uh, one of the countries of, mm. I guess you can say, the free world, mm. and they look around the culture, live there for a few years. What do you think with their attitudes? Be towards the former country, as well as the new host、mm. country. Do you think they'll be favorable, criti- criticizing them?、Um, yeah. What, what do you think? I think in some ways it would depend, but I would probably have to say there would be a mixed reaction. Like they would certainly look at some things and say, "Wow, this is this is so much better than what I what we had before." But they'd also I think there's room for criticism as well, where they're looking at what their host country、uh, takes for granted. And looks at it and goes there. Not it's not perfect. It's not a perfect place.、Mm-hmm. But as I think it's a, it would be a mix of both awe and wonder, and also a almost like a confused reaction, also as well. Yeah, it,、mm. it'll be interesting because、mm. when you when you come, I guess when we're looking to the speech given、mm. to a person who has done a very similar thing.、Mm-hmm. If they start criticizing it, you know,、mm. you you feel proud and say, "Oh, you know what? If you don't like it, go back to your own country."、Mm. That kind of idea. But you want to see where they come from, and because they have a fresh perspective, they're looking outside into your into your own culture and、mm. nation. Then you know what? They might have something that's worth value. They、mm. they might live a hard life, and they come here and say, "You guys are just spoiled brats." Yeah.、Um, Well, there's a speaker in the U.S. named、uh, Dinesh D'Souza. Have you heard of him before? Yes, I have. Yeah, he he well he was he was born in in India. He's got a, he has a very interesting story that he talks about where he talks about how growing up he grew up in the caste system. So, for anyone not familiar with what the caste system is, is that if you whatever family you are born in, you essentially are destined to live on the, in the same.、Uh, Do the same job that your father has done, who and follow upon that your grandfather and great grandfather possibly has done as well.、Mm-hmm. There's no upward mobility. There's no if you are a gifted artist or you are a gifted programmer, for example, you're good with computers. There's no way for you to gravitate towards those、um, towards something that you are having an a talent in. It's that you will do this particular job and live this particular life that's or preordained for you almost. So you talk about real systemic discrimination in there? Ah,、uh, maybe because <laughs> there is the notion of the the, the caste system,、mm. and it's also linked to your your birth. Yeah, right. Whereas if you live in the, in Australia, America,、mm. you can't the employers can't discriminate you on your 
ecological but, background. Exactly. Right? They're not exactly. supposed to, and then yeah. there is a means of mm. redressing it within the court of law. Yeah. Well, well, essentially, it's the entire society that is saying this is how the world works. This is how our society functions. So you kind of you can try to fight it, but you essentially are fighting an inevitable battle, mm. or a and what would the word be a a battle you cannot win. Uh, and and D'Souza comments that when he he had the um, opportunity to go to America, I believe, to study. And he arrived in America and was looked around in absolute wonder and went, oh my goodness, this is a, this is amazing where he's got a fun, funny story where even your poor are, uh, have enough food to eat. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story. We, he's talking about the ability of to climb, climb this figurative ladder mm. where you aren't stuck where you are. You can move. You can move up. You can move down. Yeah. Or you can fall down essentially, but you have the ability to climb based off your skills and a bit of luck as well, but based off your uh, skill and hard work, which I think is, a, is something that in a, a favorable quality that the, that the West of the Western countries offer, as opposed to what uh, you see in other and other cultures and other ideas that are that are out there in the world. Mm. All right. Mm. Uh, moving to the the person that we're going to discuss about, which is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Mm. So, um, you, you know, if you follow like the Jordan Peterson thing, he reads he reads a lot of his well, he reads the, his famous book Gulag Archipelago: mm. Experiment in Literary Investigation. Um, that is his, just detailing his time in the gulags as well as what was going on in Russia in terms of this like concentration camp going on. Mm. Uh, so. Uh, he also wrote about uh, a fictional book, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which is also on a, a movie you can watch as well. So that's a, that's a more fiction book. But, you know, it's about the Soviet prison system that exists between 1918 to 1960. And, you know, the Russian name is Glavno Uplavi which I'm probably butchered the Russian on that one, but it means an English main directorate of camps. I'm AKA, sure you'll be forgiven, yeah. unless our audience is Russian, yeah. just depending. But, but if you shorten the Russian um, the, the, the Russian words, it becomes gulag. Right. Uh, and, and that is basically... So why is it like archipelago? So why is it like the island chain? It's because mm. you have a network of these labor camps set up by Lenin, right? Mm. So people think, you know, Lenin was this good guy and then Stalin was a bad guy. Mm. Well, Lenin actually started these camps um, and they dotted around Russia and they end up like this, you know, island island chains or archipelago. And the official records have that 18 million people entered the camps from 1930 to 1953. Mm. 1.8 million people died. So Stalin pretty much continued these gulag mm. camps. And then later on, you had uh, Khrushchev, who come on, who came in and started mm. de-Stalinization. So yeah. you know, all the cult of Stalin, that mm. goes away. Yeah. But you still have the prison camps, not to the same extent of a gulag, but that still exists like today in the Russian federa- Federation. Mm. So Solzhenitsyn, he was an artillery officer in World War II, and he was disillusioned with, with Stalin. So if you know a little bit about the Russian history of World War II, is that Stalin purged... So Stalin, before the Nazi invaded, he purged all the generals. He purged all the experienced military people mm-hmm. so that when the Germans invaded, they didn't have the command, they didn't have the experience right. to fight back against the Nazis. He essentially gutted the military infrastructure, the, yeah. the intellectual infrastructure, yeah. so they didn't know how to defend themselves. Because he, they, they gutted the, the military infrastructure for mm-hmm. the sake of 
having uh, a submissive and having retained an authority and right. fear he, over these these military guys. So I'm guessing he was concerned of disloyalty within the ranks, within yeah. the generals. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that was what Stalin did, mm. right? And, and so Solzhenitsyn was like, well, you know what? The root cause of all this, you know, retreating back is, you know, Stalin did this. And then he he wrote letters back and forth, and he was eventually caught by the NKVD, the secret police, for criticizing Stalin. And so was sentenced for eight years. They, they held a trial in his absence, sentenced him for eight years. Right. And so he moved around to prison camps. Okay, so and, he got to see them firsthand. Yep. And uh, he finished his sentence, but then there's still, you know, internal exile. You really can't leave this certain area. Of, right. Within the Russian system. Five, five kilometer radius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing that's interesting is that um, when I was reading his book is that after World War II, right, all the Russian soldiers who participated in World War II, they were sent to the camps as well. Right. Uh, do you, so do you know why the, why the World War II soldiers were sent to the these gulags? Yeah, yeah. They saw Germany. They saw all these Western countries to... Mm. to uh, and they oh, saw like, well, these guys course. have food, they have massive houses, they all have this... Oh, Russia is, oh, is crap. Course, and so course. if you've seen the outside world, you yeah. also need to be purged and re-educated and brought back into Russia as right. well. Right. No, as soon as you said that, it's like, that makes... It, it makes it's understandable why that would have been the reaction, what that, why that would have happened. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so later on, Solzhenitsyn was deported to West Germany in 1974 for mm. his books. Uh, so he did I'm, actually manage to smuggle these books out through, mm. I, I believe it's microfilm. Oh, yeah. And, and he got it published. Mm. Um, so you, so you banishing know, him to West Germany, again, the West, the side that was controlled by the West, that sounds like a good thing for him. Yeah, I mean, he didn't, he, he couldn't execute him because he became famous when ah, he put in his books. So right. he's like, you know what? You can't stay here anymore. So we can't piss off the US and the British. Got it. <laughs> Uh, he, and then later on from West Germany, he moved to the US mm. and then returned to Russia in 1991 and okay. died in Moscow in 2008. There we go. It's not, not, that, not that long ago, really. Yeah, like 12 years ago. Yeah. Or 13 years ago now. Oh. Have you read any of his books? No, I haven't. Not personally. Okay. But I've uh, can listened to a couple of his speeches, things like that, paraphrase, yeah. paraphrase. Yeah, one day, I, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich is a pretty interesting book because mm. it's just you know raw survival, mm. survival to fittest, that kind of stuff, and learning to just endure every day in the camps. Mm. Whereas the Gulag Archipelago, it's like three volume books, but there's a abridged version that came out. Mm. I, I believe I've only read up to the bits. So he gets in, d- detained and he gets sent to the prison, and he talks about. The games they play with, you know, even communists who get mm. sent to the to, to, to the gulag, and yeah. they believe that, like, oh, I'm here because I was sent here by mistake. No, you are here to be purged, right? <laughs> but and he does all these investigations about the little tactics that the secret police will bring mm. in to to just you know try to send you secretly, quietly away. Yeah. And then he just says, you know, if only someone stood, if only we all stood up, yeah, to the system then the whole thing would have collapsed. Mm. But we were also fearful and we were also submissive. Yeah. Yeah. This episode is looking at his 8th of June, 1978, Harvard University speech delivered to the 327th graduation ceremony. So you can actually look on online, like YouTube and all kind of stuff, and watch him do the speech, but he does it in Russian with an English translator. But you can also look at some of the people who just upload the voiceovers on yeah. the speech and they can, and can you get it a bit more smoother and can also listen to it it is quite long but 
Um, yeah, about, it 40, is, about 45 minutes, 50 is, minutes. Yeah, 45 right minutes. And, but it is like every point, like, I but, get that. I get that. And yeah, like, he, I see that his point even now, even though it's written back in 1978. Yeah, I listened to, the, I listened to an English translated version, but I had the speech... Uh, written out as well and i was reading through it as i was listening to it and it's, it's actually it's quite a well i found it was a well-structured speech actually yeah that you could listen to it and you could follow as you said follow through his points quite well yeah. so, so there's a but there's a bunch of different ways that you can uh, listen to it yeah so, so but you think about it, this is a guy who's exiled from the ussr and he comes to you know harvard university a place of learning mm. you would think something like oh look how great you guys are mm. you know you, you students have so much to live for yeah but he actually crit- instead of critiquing the soviet system mm. and uh, or praising the western mm. system he actually critiques the western culture yeah. which is the very controversial point which is probably not what harvard thought that he was going to speak about they probably were going hey let's get someone who can bash the ussr and praise us mm. not what they got yeah uh, and I guess to sort of immerse the audience into how the speech was, oh, the environment that the speech was delivered mm-hmm. in, was that, you know, American history, like, we're coming out of Vietnam War, so 1975, right? Yeah. So the speech was 1978. So it's mm-hmm. three years, still fresh in people's mind. Yeah. You still had the Cold War, the Soviet Union. So mm-hmm. you still had, you know, nuclear annihilation, mutual destruction between the two great mm-hmm. powers, in the forefront of people's minds. Yeah. You had the 1970s, so you had sex, mm. drugs, rock and roll mm. going on. Uh, you had a pretty much a shake-up in Western culture that was very different from World War II. Yeah. You know, World War II. The great we generation. Good, we were yeah. the good guys. Oh, so the Western powers are the good guys. Mm. We defeated bad guys. The, it was a very black and white morality, yeah. essentially. But we yeah. can let's focus on rebuilding this nation, whereas mm. the Vietnam War was like, Pretty much giving the middle finger. I don't want to be drafted. I don't want to follow authority anymore. It was a nation divided unto itself. Yeah. Yeah. Enter Enter So what I'll try to do is, you know, it's 45 minutes long speech, but I've taken out bits and pieces and try to still maintain the flow mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. And I'll read from his, um, his, his excerpts and we'll try a little bit of the discussion between myself and Pat. And then we'll just hit each point and we'll go into reflecting thoughts and then conclude from there. Mm. So where he starts off in is the, I guess, you know, where the, the modern Western history starts. So colonialism and the Western worldview. So he says, how short a time ago, relatively, that a small new European world was easily seizing colonies everywhere, not only without anticipating any real resistance, but also usually despising any possible values in the conquered people's approach to life. On the face of it, it was an overwhelming success. There were no geographic frontiers to it. Western society expanded in the triumph of human independence and power. And all of a sudden, in the 20th century, came the discovery of its fragility and frailty. We now see that the conquests proved to be short-lived and precarious. And this in turn points to defects in the Western view of the world, which led to these conquests. Relations with the former colonial world now has turned into the opposite, and the Western world often goes in the extremes of obsequiousness. That is, um, like, you know, kowtowing or we're feeling guilty, that kind of stuff. There's all these big words in here, like I can't look up. He's a Russian philosopher, what were you expecting? Yeah. <laughs> But it's difficult yet to estimate the total size of the bill which former colonial countries will present to the West, and it's difficult to predict whether the surrender not only of its last colonies, but of everything it owns will be sufficient for the West to foot the bill. 
So we start off with you know Western culture emerging, spreading out, colonizing um, all the, the new world out there, and its repercussions. You know because afterwards, you know, twentieth century, we start going into decolonization yeah. and to make them independent. That's right. But they're fulfilling the values that were spread by the West: the idea of freedom, justice, liberty. Those sort of ide- those sort of philosophical ideas. Those are now being fulfilled or given over to. These other countries that were colonized. Yeah, so mm. you sort of see like you know Western guilt. Yeah, pretty much. And that, and there's a there's a blowback from that essentially. Oh, and, yeah. and, and you know what? It is, it is rampant everywhere mm. around you. So yeah. you know you have the welcome to country speech mm. in Australia. Mm. You know we acknowledge the the people of mm. this you know Aboriginal Indigenous people of this um, yeah. area of Australia, mm. and it's a different one for each you know yeah. suburb pretty much. Mm. But it's also it's also not. Uh, not there's not without merit of that there was that what happened during the colonial era of human history that not it was not all good there was there were evils that were done and those do need to be acknowledged but there's a balance that needs to be had yeah and i think that we're especially today with the conversations we're having there's a imbalance in everything that was related to colonialism was evil and there was evil intent in the people that were doing it yeah and that i don't i think that there's a balancing act that has to be yeah found like, there. you don't want to be too black and white because yeah. you know you had the education you had introduction of the health system mm. you, you've had i believe in india when a bridge came over they had they banned you know the when the husband died the mm. wife had to pretty much jump into the fire yeah to be with her husband yeah so that was, you know, suppressed. Mm. I think an interesting line that Solzhenitsyn writes is that the West really despise any possible value in the conquered people's approach to life. Because whereas, as the West expanded with their idea, well, with our ideas of how the world should work, they obviously encountered peoples and groups that had come up with different ideas. Mm. And, often those, and often those ideas were so radically different. And in some ways, I think I'm reminded of jump back a couple more centuries to uh, Hernan Cortez encountering the Aztecs. He encounters them and they're doing human sacrifice. Yeah. And he's going, uh, what the heck is going on here? But but if I might also add is that mm. there is a sense of moral superiority that came from the colonialism country. Yes. We, we are conquering these people. Yeah. This land is ours. Yeah. But even after decolonization, mm. we still have this Western superiority view because we need to help them. Yes, yeah, it's this almost it's got almost got this trappings of our way is the best and this might makes right sort of mentality as but well. It, like there is a looking down on these people and yeah. saying, Oh, look at you, you're so poor. You need our help. Let's come yeah. in and help. Even though we've gone away from the mm. uh we've gone from decolonization, mm. we still have this Western superiority view. Well, there's this concept of the first world being the West and the third world. Mm which needs our help to be lifted up. Yeah. Uh, it, so you're right, there's, there's still this notion that permeates throughout. But at the same token, we're saying we need to lift the third world up, but colonization is bad and we and we are filled, we're racked with guilt. But it also, past. I believe he says, you know, there's a bill that the West needs to pay and that's mm. coming at the cost of, lifting the third world comes at the cost of the first world. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. Mm. So, convergence, globalization, and tolerance. So, he says, 
But the blindness of superiority continues in spite of all and upholds the belief that vast regions everywhere on our planet should develop and mature to the level of present-day Western systems, which in theory are the best and in practice the most attractive. Mm. There is this belief that all those other worlds are only being temporarily prevented by wicked governments or by heavy crisis or by their own barbarity or incomprehension from taking the way of Western pluralistic democracy and from adopting the Western way of life. Countries are judged on the merit of their progress in this direction. However, it is a conception which developed out of Western incomprehension of the essence of other worlds. Yeah. Out of the mistake of measuring them all with a Western yardstick, the real picture of our planet's development is quite different. Anguish about our divided world gave birth to the theory of convergence between leading Western countries and the Soviet Union. It is a soothing theory which overlooks the fact that these worlds are not at all developing into similarity. Neither one can be transformed into the other without the use of violence. Besides, convergence inevitably means acceptance of the other side's defects too, and this is hardly desirable. So it's a, rec- it's a recognition, I think, that well, it's each country coming to a recognition they don't have all the answers that they are not, that their way of living life is perfect. I think it's a very sophisticated way of saying if we just all hold hands, you know, the Western side is the good side, and this is how we measure other countries, yeah. right? The first was all the Western countries, and the third world, mm. the second second world was like the Soviet Union. The yeah. third world is is the barbarians, pretty much. That's yeah. what you said. Yeah, and therefore we need to bring the all the second world and the third world needs mm. to come up to uh, the first yeah. world, and it's and it, it is the assumption that the first world is the pinnacle. Mm. That it there's nothing more beyond what the West and that when we when at that time when we're talking about the West we're talking about countries like America, mm. like Britain, like Australia, probably less so Australia at that point in history, but uh, certainly today when we think of the West, yeah. and that what we have right now is the pinnacle, the top of the mountain that we've achieved. I think that's a bit of a a a blind spot, a conceit almost. Yeah. So the speech is called "The World Split Apart," and yeah. so we see the world split into the first world, second mm-hmm. world, third world. Yeah. And there we have this theory of convergence. That mm. is, let's bring the first world and the second world and the third world all together and we can yeah. smooth it out. And so we you have, have one world. One world unified. vision, one global idea. I, I hate to say the world global, but because it starts evoking like conspiracy and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, but, but yeah, your point is made, is well made though. Yeah, mm. uh, and, and therefore... To converge to each other it just means mm. tolerance. We just yeah. accept each other. Yeah. But there is a downside to tolerance. Yeah. That, you know, the second and third world view do have some faults mm. that we don't want in the first world. Yeah. So, you know, the second world, you know, the Soviet Union had a system of oppression. Mm. Uh, the third world, you know, some, some of them would have the theory, uh, as you said, the caste system. We don't mm. want that. Yeah. But do we have to, do we have to tolerate that? Mm. Mm. And, and also do we have well there's also the question of the age-old question of do we have the right to tell someone else who wants who wants to live that way that no you can't live that way mm. so it, it is that it's that push and pull between this conflict of ideas the marketplace of ideas if you would it's a it's a it's a very difficult thing question to wrestle with actually uh, a declining courage mm. so his next point is a declining courage may be the most striking feature which an outside observer notice in the west in our days the western world has lost its civil courage both as a world and 
and separately in each country, each government, each political party, and of course in the United Nations. Such That's probably what made him really unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the United Nations converging, right? Uh, he says, uh, continuing, uh, such a decline in courage is particularly noticeable among the ruling class and the intellectual elite, causing an impression of loss of courage by the entire society. Of course, there are many courageous individuals, but they have no determining influence on public life. So we're, talk- we're not talking about bravery or like, you know, uh, valor. We're talking about the whole society courageousness. Mm. Political and intellectual bureaucrats show depression, passivity, perplexity in their actions and in their statements, even more so in theoretical reflections to explain how realistic, reasonable, as well as intellectually and even morally warranted it is to base state policies on weakness and cowardice. Mm. And decline in courage is ironically emphasized by occasional explosions of anger and inflexibility on the part of the same bureaucrats when dealing with weak governments and weak countries, not supported by anyone or with currents which cannot offer any resistance. But they get tongue-tied and paralyzed when they deal with powerful governments and threatening forces with aggressors and international terrorists. Should one point out that from ancient times, declining courage has been considered the beginning of the end. Mm. How accurate is that? It That's- cuts to the point. <laughs> I would love to be a fly on the wall and watch the be a fly on the wall and watch the dean of Harvard face as he hears the translator repeat these lines and watch his reaction. Yeah. It's like who have I just invited? I am in so much trouble. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, like. I'll quickly go through this one because mm. courage, you know, we, we value valor and all kind of stuff, but yeah. um, people can actually re- misinterpret what he's saying because mm. uh, I'll get this uh, excerpt out from yeah. David Henderson, 14th of July, 2018, where he talks about Solzhenitsyn, True and False, Part 1. So David Henderson is a research fellow at Hoover Institute and also uh, Emeritus Professor at Economics and Naval Postgrad School. And he actually says, you know, the declining courage stuff. His response is, that's hard to measure. My, but my casual empiricism says that this is true, even more true than when he spoke 40 years ago. It is somewhat common, for example, to see people passionately defending the freedom of speech of those they disagreed with. That happens less so now. And I think part of the reason is that some of those who would like to defend others' freedom are cowardly. Hmm. Still, there are strong signs of courage everywhere. Think of the recent rescue of the Thai cave boys, for example. Oh, yeah. And for excellent telling of that story, and refers to the link about the U.S. divers rescuing mm. the boys trapped in the cave, but that's what—that's not what Solzhenitsyn is saying. He's no. saying moral courage, standing up for freedom of speech, all that kind of stuff. Standing, st- having having values, and stand and standing up and defending those values, mm. even when it is difficult, and even when it is hard, and when it's unpopular. I like how he says it, like, towards the weak, the government is strong. So, like, the, the poor, the elderly, uh, they will have a very heavy hand in them against them because they can't fight back or yeah. they don't have the ability to fight back. But with, like, a foreign nation with massive navy, bases everywhere, they get tongue-tied. That's yeah. what he's saying. Well, pretty much because they don't want to get bombed out of existence. But Yeah. But at the same token, they don't stand their ground. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? I don't think so at the moment. Okay. Yeah. It is hitting, like, mm-hmm. I'm just feeling yeah. the, the hitting point in my heart right now. Yeah. So, um, well, I think, I think actually, one, one thing that's worth adding is that this taps into a little bit of what we spoke, we've spoken about previously with uh, Marcus Aurelius in his uh, Meditations book yep. and talking about 
where my how how you get a moral courage from for the nation for the state if you would for the people and the culture is it also comes from that individual based courage as well mm. so it's that it's a it's a groundswell movement almost yeah mm. all right so next point yeah western consumerism legalism not a, and how that's not a model so yeah. it says uh, when the modern western states were created the following principle was proclaimed Governments are meant to serve man, and man lives to be free to pursue happiness. Mm. See, for example, the American Declaration. Now at last, during past decades, technical and social progress has permitted the realization of such aspirations, the welfare state. Every citizen has been granted the desired freedom and material goods in such quantity and of such quality as to guarantee, in theory, the achievements of happiness in the morally inferior sense which has come into being during that same decades. Hmm. In the process, however, one psychological detail has been overlooked, the constant detail to have still more things and have a still better life and the struggle to obtain them imprints many Western faces with worry and even depression, though it is customary to conceal such feelings. You know, being true to yourself, hmm. you know, everything, how you, I'm fine. Yeah, everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, nothing, nothing wrong going on here. <laughs> I'm depressed. Well, fine. Uh, active, intense competition permeates all human thoughts without opening a free way to, without opening a way to free spiritual development. The individual's independence from many types of state pressure has been guaranteed, and the majority of people have been granted well-being to extent their fathers and grandfathers could not even dream about. It has become possible to raise young people according to these ideals, leading them to physical splendor, happiness, possessions of material goods, money and leisure, to an almost unlimited freedom of enjoyment. So who should now renounce all this? Why and for what should one risk one's precious life in defense of common values? Mm. And particularly in such nebulous cases when the security of one's nation must be defended in a distant country. Even biology knows what that habitual extreme safety and well-being are not advantageous for a living organism. Today, well-being in a life of Western society has begun to reveal its pernicious mask. There's but a lot in there. It is so deep. It is like like there's a lot of different things that we could spin off and talk about because that like we could have a podcast just about that paragraph. Honestly, like the welfare state that it has freed people from the struggles, the challenges of life, mm. and we become very comfortable yeah. i guess and, and therefore you know why should i stand mm. up you know i'm very comfortable mm. well, I, don't, I don't i don't think it's necessarily an indictment on the welfare state as a government policy or institution it's more i think that there's a the, the philosophical notion of what the welfare state represents and this is what i think Solzhenitsyn is tapping into i think it's really interesting he mentions the declaration of independence because there's a line in there that talks about the pursuit of happiness as being a core ideal of the American psyche and the and American and a, a value that America has put forward, especially with its own people. But I think you you asked me at the start if someone from the third the second or third world comes to the first uh, and looks around and whether they see what what's their reaction are they do they see good things bad things would they criticize would they be amazed I think this is where Solzhenitsyn is highlighting the yes the the west has uh, there are a lot of good things that the west has to offer but here is where things are starting to fall apart is that 
it re- I think that his passage here is revealing the conceit of amassing material wealth and possessions and prosperity, that that equals happiness. Mm. I would also say it's it's the world view that the government, a Western government, is supposed to guarantee you happiness. Mm. But the constitution says you are free to pursue happiness. Yeah. Is, the government doesn't is give the, you happiness. Jo- the government's job is to essentially get out of your way and allow you to uh, achieve, achieve, uh, to pursue, pursue happiness. What yeah. makes you happy? Yeah. So, so in terms of like, you, you want to buy a house, right? Mm. You need to save up money to buy a loan. Yeah. And then you, you buy the house. You go through all the hard work, all yeah. that stuff, and then you get to move into your house and mm. enjoy it. Yes, that's right. right. If the big government comes in and says, "Here's your house," yeah, you don't struggle through those challenges. You so, don't earn it. Yeah. Oh my God, earn it. That's such a that's such a you know conservative idea. I know, isn't it? <laughs> Um, and so, therefore, what I interpret him saying yeah. is that government has freed you from earning stuff mm. and to go through those challenges, and therefore you are overall a weaker person. Mm. And uh, well, this this is a principle of how blacksmiths used to work, actually, where you'd go through the forging process. You would take raw materials, raw metals, and you would have to put them. You would have to essentially use your use your hammer and anvil to uh, beat pretty much pulverize the metal to remove all the impurities. And once it went through this struggle, went through these trials, essentially, you then uh, result, the result is pure, is a purified, um, purified metal. But he also says biology, which is very yes. interesting. Thing. Yeah. So, so he talks about biology, says if it's too safe, then it's not very good. Mm. And um, I recently went to Australia Zoo with the girlfriend and yeah. we saw Sumatran tigers living in a zoo. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they are fed comfortably. They yeah. live... And obey the human's command mm. uh, more so in terms of uh, sit here, sit there, so yeah. that they can weigh the animal rather than mm. you know just do tricks. Mm. Uh, but you think about it, right? Tigers living in the zoo versus tigers living ca- captivity, yeah. fighting for its own food, hunting for its own food. Yeah. Which is going to survive better? In which environment? Uh, in if the, it's in the wild, out, outside in the wild, right? Definitely, definitely the one in the wild. Yeah, the yeah. wild tiger. Like yeah. If you take the the the, the, the tame raised, the tame one would not know how to how to defend itself. No. Why can't it defend itself? Because it looks to the human as its provider. Yeah, for similar, everything. Similar to, I guess, humans living to looking up to, I guess, capital B gov- big government. Yes, <laughs> Cap- capital B, capital G, capital B G. <laughs> Capitalized big government, yeah, which to look that which which the authority permeates through everything yeah. as the savior. So essentially, and you could take big government and put a simpler term there as the state, which is obviously what Solzhenitsyn came from from Soviet Russia, where the state was the all-encompassing entity that controlled everything. Yeah, it was God. Yeah, well, well, that that's Nietzsche right there. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche was talking about we're replacing God with something else, yeah. and you've, you've once you kill God, once God is dead, God has, God has to be replaced with something to fill that void. You can't just have it empty. And in this case, government had, government had swooped in to fill that void. Yeah, and you can see that for, you can see that fulfilled both in Soviet Russia in the during the Cold War, and I'd argue in in America today. Mm. But also to bring it home to Australia because yeah, I was, back um, home. I was listening uh, to one of the podcasts and talk about Sir Keith Hancock in Australia, who wrote the book called Australia uh, in 1930, and it says um, 
Thus, Australian democracy has come to look upon the state as a vast public utility whose duty it is to provide the greatest happiness for the greatest number. To the Australian, the state means collective power at the service of individualistic rights. End quote. So the Australians, everyday Australians, see the government or the state serving them to provide them happiness. Yeah. Not enabling the happiness, you know, yeah. upholding the rule of law. And, that, and, so that's because the Ameri- and that's because the American experience and the Australian experience is very different. Australia has borrowed, I think, from a lot of the America's or the West's ideas. It's borrowed a lot from that, but it ha- actually hasn't gone through the struggle. America had to go through a revolutionary war to throw off the shackles of that were being put on them by the British, mm. by the British Empire. So there was a struggle, there was a, there was a trial they had to go through in order to win their independence, to win their liberty and freedom. But, and that, and that obviously, I think, I think to me at least, it's very obvious that it, that imprinted on the American psyche. But you translate that, the, the fruits of that labor over to a country like Australia. You're right, where we look at the gov, we don't look at the government in the same way that America does. I would argue that it did. And we see it as you as you said as more of a utility as a, as a provider of these services. Yeah, it's going to make uh, I guess weaker people. Yeah. Um, all right, moving on to the next point: legalistic life. Mm. So Western society has given itself the organization best suited to its purposes, based I would say on the letter of the law. The limits of human rights and righteousness are determined by a system of laws. Such limits are very broad. People in the West have acquired considerable skill in using interpreting and manipulating law, even though laws tend to be too complicated for an average person to understand, but the help of an expert. Any conflict is solved according to the letter of the law, and this is considered to be the supreme solution. If one is right from a legal point of view, nothing more is required. Nobody may mention that one would still or one could still not be entirely right and urge self restraint, a willingness to renounce such legal rights sacrifice and selfless risk it would sound simply absurd one almost never sees voluntarily self-restraint everybody operates at the extreme limits of these legal frames an oil company is legally blameless when it purchases an invention of a new type of energy in order to prevent its use a food product manufacturer is legally blameless when he poisons his produce to make it last longer after all people are free not to buy it and he says, I have spent all my life under a communist regime, and I'll tell you that society without any objective legal scale is a terrible one indeed. But a society with no other scale but the legal one is not quite worthy of men either. A society which is based on letter of law and never reaches any higher is taking very scarce advantage of the higher level of human possibilities. The letter of the law is too cold and formal to have a beneficial influence in society. Whenever the tissue of life is woven on legalistic relations, there is an atmosphere of moral mediocrity, paralyzing man's noblest impulses. So, do you understand this bit here? That's, I think that's what we're trying to discuss. That, I think that's the key, that is one of one of the key points. Like, if you were to if you were to look at this entire speech, and I'm looking at a 14 page transcript <laughs> right here. Yeah. If you were to look at the entirety of the speech, I think this is one of the tentpole points. That Solzhenitsyn is making here. I guess from my view is that, you know what, he's not dissing on the law. You know, he's lived in Soviet Russia where 
law was very vague. There was effectively no law. Law was whatever Stalin said. Yeah. Right. But whatever the boss said, pretty much yeah, goes. But, but even if you go, if he lives in Western culture, and he says, you know, everyone is done legalistically um, by the letter of the law, and that you can sue, and then whatever the the judge says, that's the resolution. Uh, what that is that what the judge says, right? You can legally put in little bits of toxins in your food yeah. to make it last longer. That's legally okay, but that's not what you should do, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it tells it talks about it's limiting uh, human possibilities, right? We we are, we can do so much better than law, and I think that's uh, I hate to say, it, but like you know, it's that's what the 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 Christian message is. You know, the Pharisees just saw the biblical law, yeah. and they were just doing things by the, the, the letter, the letter of the law. Yeah, but you know, Christ says you need to go beyond the law, the heart of the law, and the morality of it. That's right. You know, charity, you aren't forced to do charity no but it's a good thing that it's brought by moral values sorry you you were saying anything <laughs> no 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 okay so i think that again there was so there was so much in this speech uh, i've listened to it a couple i've listened to it twice i think in the lead up to this podcast okay and i've read through this and i'm looking at this again as we're reading through this at these different segments going there's so much here that we if we just stop we could stop and unpack this but um so I think Solzhenitsyn here is drawing a really interesting point of this. He's linking religion with this moral, with this moral code. There's a moral foundation that the law can't satisfy. The legal system on its own in isolation. If you run a society, he does make a point saying that you need you need a system of law. You need a system of rules in order to function. But if it's in isolation, then you're right. You could you could theoretically legalize the factory owner could poison the well, or the um, the business the farmer could poison the food. Yeah, and yeah. there would be no repercussion to that. Another commentary I was listening to on his speech was talking about mm. external law versus internal law. External yeah. law is you know the court of law, mm. but internal law is law of heart, the the law of the hearts of men. You know, we talk about self restraint, discipline, yeah. that kind of stuff. Mm. That's missing from Western society. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's not. It's no. I don't. I think it was there, but I don't. I don't think it's no longer ingrained within the culture, within the society anymore. Well, I think it's because because we rely on external law. Yeah. To fill in push, the gap. Let's push to the extreme limits of it. That's what. Yeah. Well, it's where you can see, frankly, if you look at cases that are put before the courts in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You can see immediately if you look at some of the some of the cases that before you realize why the the justice system is uh, roadblocked as much as it is with just so many cases it's trying to get through. Yeah. But you can if you look at some if you look at some of the decisions that are made, they're absolutely insane. They're absolutely <laughs> crazy. Yeah. What is either being permitted or restricted? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Really interesting quote that I really like is by uh, John Adams where he's talking about he's uh, reflecting on the, what on the nature of the constitution in America. So John Adams was the third president, US president. Sure. Uh, he says that our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. The constitution is, is giving the American people freedom and liberty, but freedom and, limit, freedom and liberty can be legalized, can be encoded into law, but it only works if you have a moral foundation to base it off. You can only have, free, you can only have freedom 
if you've got that moral foundation that is keeping the excesses of it in check. Mm. So that the people have the moral framework given to them by the church. Mm. But what's written in the, the paper is the constitution. That's right. But so the, and the, constitution, be- the constitution is a legal document yeah. as well. So it is, it is a legal document that uh, codifies essentially what government, what the role of government is supposed to be. Yeah. But that's all null and void if you don't have the people operating on a moral framework where the uh, oil company um, – let me have a quick look here. Hang on. Well, I was thinking of an example which, yeah, which, just, which just popped into my head, which yeah. is like a marriage contract. You don't live a relationship according to the marriage contract. Say, like, oh, you didn't – you didn't do the, you didn't love me this part of the day, this part of the day. Yeah, exactly. Therefore, exactly. You want to go to the heart of your vow, which yeah. is you committed to one another. That's right. Um, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. And the the example that Solzhenitsyn here gives is that the food product manager legally might be considered blameless if he poisons his product, yeah. but if he's got a moral foundation of I shouldn't be poisoning my customers because that will hurt, injure, possibly kill an innocent person, I'm, he has a moral compulsion not to do that. Mm. But if you remove morality from the uh, morality from the, from the table, and as Solzhenitsyn points out, if you just operate your society wholly and focused on, on the legal system, it, ha- it has no restraint. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll move on to the next point. So yeah. the direction of freedom. So in today's Western society, the inequality has been revealed of freedom for good deeds and freedom for evil deeds. A statesman who wants to achieve something important and highly constructive of his country has to move cautiously and even timidly. There are thousands of hasty and irresponsible critics around him. Parliament and the press keep rebuffing him. As he moves ahead, he has to prove that every single step of his his is well-founded and absolutely flawless. Otherwise, you'll get destroyed. (laughs) Let's get cancelled. Actually, an outstanding and particularly gifted person who has unusual and unexpected initiatives in mind hardly gets a chance to assert himself. From the very beginnings, dozens of traps will be set out for him. Thus, mediocrity triumphs with the excuse of restrictions imposed by democracy. It is feasible and easy everywhere to undermine the administrative power. And in fact, it has been drastically weakened in all Western countries. Defense of individual rights has reached such extremes as to make society as a whole defenseless against certain individuals. It is time in the West to defend not so much human rights as human obligations. Destructive and irresponsible freedom has been granted boundless space. Society appears to have little defense against the abyss of human decadence such as, for example, misuse of liberty for moral violence against young people, motion pictures full of pornography, crime and horror. It is considered to be part of freedom and theoretically counterbalanced by the young people's right not to look or not to accept. Life organized legalistically has thus shown its inability to defend itself against the corrosions of evil. And what shall we say about a dark realm of criminality as such? Legal frames, especially in the United States, are broad enough to encourage not only individual freedom, but also certain individual crimes. The culprit can go unpunished or obtain undeserved leniency for for the support of thousands of public defenders. When a government starts an earnest fight against terrorism, public opinion immediately accuses it of violating the terrorist civil rights. There are many such cases. Such a tilt of freedom 
in the direction of evil has come about gradually, but it was evidently born primarily out of a humanistic and benevolent concept according to which there is no evil inherent to human nature. The world belongs to mankind and all the defects of life are caused by wrong social systems, which must be corrected. Strangely enough, though the best social conditions have been achieved in the West, there still is criminality and there is even considerably more of it than in the pauper and lawless Soviet society. There is a huge number of prisoners in our camps which are termed criminals, but most of them never committed any crimes. They merely try to defend themselves against a lawless state resorting to means outside of its legal framework. Well, so it's like freedom. Freedom's out there, but you can do good and also do bad. Yeah. The value of, I think that the value of freedom does not automatically or inherently mean equal good. I think that I do I think that freedom is a value that is a good value but Solzhenitsyn here points out I think and again I think rightly so that you can in essence have too much freedom where you essentially then turn your society into one of consent where you are consenting to not participate essentially where there is so much degradation around you so much filth that you then need to, you're, you're being you're being told by everyone else that's okay you don't have to participate you you don't you don't have to be involved but you're looking around at all this filth and this garbage yeah I think I think he he so he, in, the, in that paragraph in probably what was only a couple of minutes when he was speaking he tackles and dismantles politicians mediocre yeah. politicians who don't have the the individual moral bravery or courage to stand up to do the right thing. But he also he also tackles the public square and uh, public tackle human rights. The human rights, yeah. But the the like entertainment and things and the excesses that are in that as well. Yeah, but it's also the belief that humans aren't inherently evil, which mm. is wrong because my my argument has always been that you know you've always had to teach kids generosity, sharing, yeah. don't fight against your brothers and sisters, yeah. that kind of, don't lie, don't You cheat. need to teach them morality needs to be taught. And I think, yeah. and that's an inter- interesting philosophical argument of base nature of, of humanity is our default good or evil. Mm. Uh, I, I would probably te- I tend to agree with you in that the the base nature of hu- of humanity is leans towards evil as its initial starting point. And you can, and that's evidenced by when you interact with a baby or a small child, mm. their well, focus is self-centered. Not the, not the evil baby. <laughs> evil. I'm, I'm picturing that now. <laughs> no, I don't think that all babies are evil. It's, it's more like uh, infants, or you know. Yeah, well. but their adi- the attitude is not again not evil, but it is uh, it is self-centered. Okay. Anyway, yep. moving on before I dig myself too much of a hole. <laughs> uh, so he says, <laughs> we'll, direct, get, we'll get bad comments. <laughs> direction of the press. And, uh, uh, we mentioned this in our very, very first episode. The press, too, of course, enjoys the widest freedom. I shall be using the word press to include all media. But what sort of use does it make of this freedom? Here again, the main concern is not to infringe the letter of the law. There is no more responsibility for defamation or disproportion. What sort of responsibility does a journalist have to his readers or to history? If they have misled public opinion or the government by inaccurate information or wrong conclusions, do we know of any such public recognition and rectification of such mistakes by the same journalist or the same newspaper? 
No, it does not happen because it would damage sales. A nation may be the victim of such mistake, but a journalist always gets away with it. One may safely assume that he will start writing the opposite with renewed self-assurance. Because instant and credible information has to be given, it becomes necessary to resort to guesswork, rumours and suppositions to fill in the voids, and none of them have will ever be rectified. They will stay on in the reader's memory. How many hasty, immature, superficial and misleading judgments are expressed every day, confusing readers without any verification? The press can both stimulate public opinion and miseducate it. Thus we may see terrorists heroized or secret matters pertaining to one nation's defense publicly revealed. We may witness shameless intrusion of the privacy of well-known people under the slogan, everyone is entitled to know everything, but this is a false slogan characteristic of a false error. People also have the right not to know and is a much more valuable one. The right not to have their divine souls stuffed with gossip, nonsense, vain talk. A person who works and leads a meaningful life does not need this excessive burdening flow of information. Hastiness and superficiality are the psychic disease of the 20th century and more. And more than anywhere else, this disease is reflected in the press. In-depth analysis of a problem is anathema to the press. It stops at sensational formulas. Such as it is, however, the press has become the greatest power within the Western countries, more powerful than the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. One would like to ask, by what law has been elected, and to whom is it responsible? In the Communist East, a journalist is frankly appointed as a state official, but who has granted Western journalists their power, and for how long a time, and with what prerogatives? There is yet another surprise for someone coming from the East, where the press is rigorously unified. One gradually discovers a common trend of preferences within the Western press as a whole. It is a fashion. There are generally accepted patterns of judgment, and there may be common corporate interests. The sum effect being not competition, but unification. Enormous freedom exists for the press, but not for the readership, because newspapers mostly give enough stress and emphasis to those opinions which do not too openly contradict their own and a general trend. Like that. Lack of in-depth analysis in media. Probably mm. that's the rise of podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, you know, you got the clickbaity news, mm. social media. Yeah. Um, this speed at how stuff uh, uh, is getting out, disinformation. Mm. Um, Should we say fake news? Oh, fake news. <laughs> I guess you have a trend. In, mm. There's a trend in all media. Like mm. even, even the ABC, which... It's government funded, and therefore mm. we like to portray ourselves as the middle person. Yeah, it is very left leaning. It does lean to the left when they talk politics. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, but it becomes difficult. It be, well, I encountered an interesting term called uh, alternative facts just the other day, actually, <laughs> which yeah. was it was an interesting notion to play around with of going, can you is the, like what does that actually mean? Again, from a philosophical point of view, what does that actually mean when you're having a conversation with someone and you're both bringing different sets of facts? Um, so the term being alternative facts, be essentially saying some facts are okay to use, some facts are not. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, 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 it's just that we've got different points of view and we're using different bits of information to inform those points of view. But now some, po some of those points of view are not considered Good or right or right or correct. Is that relativism? 
I think it. I, yeah, I think it. It does. It does dance along that line. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But like um, how he says, you know, there's freedom for the press, but not for the readership. Mm. And there's a lack of, you know, correcting the the facts out yeah. there. And, and the Western press is more powerful than the government, more powerful than the you know the prime minister, mm. the the supreme judge, as yeah. well as you know senate and the house mm. of representatives. Well, it was called. It was in America. It was known as, and well, still is today, but it was known as the fourth estate. So you had three branches of the of American government: the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. The fourth was the media. The, the, again, the the three branches of government were designed to keep each other in check, to keep each other to essentially have enough tension between them so that they one didn't become too powerful. But the one that keeps all three of them in check is the media as well, mm-hmm. and, and that's why they were, they were given the name the Fourth Estate. Mm-hmm. I think I think that they serve a very having that that independence and being able to criticize uh, the leader is very important. But the problem that we're seeing today, or in the 70s, was, uh, and, and even following on today, is what happens when the media become, all start talking to the same tune. Yeah. And they become, essentially they have, they get stuck in an intellectual bubble where they're all saying the exact same narrative, the exact same thing. You've got a problem there because they're not actually doing their job, which is critically examining what's actually what's actually going on keeping the power in check of the government they're not doing that job anymore yeah i was trying to remember is it george orwell it's like if the media doesn't publish the truth then it's just doing public relations exactly well it's, it's doing it's doing what happens in the ussr where the media are essentially just public servants yeah yeah all right the other bit so he talks about vietnam mm. and he goes so very well known representatives of your society, such as George Kennan, say, we cannot apply moral criteria to politics. Thus, we mix good and evil, right and wrong, and make space for the absolute triumph of absolute evil in the world. On the contrary, only moral criteria can help the West against communism's well-planned world strategy. There are no other criteria. Practical or occasional considerations of any kind will be inevitably be swept away by strategy. After a certain level of the problem has been reached, legalistic thinking induces paralysis. It prevents one from seeing the size and the meaning of events. In spite of the abundance of information, and maybe because of it, the West has difficulties in understanding reality such as it is. There has been naive predictions by some American experts who believe that Angola would become the Soviet Union's Vietnam or the Cuban expeditions in Africa would best be stopped by a special U.S. courtesy to Cuba. Keenan's advice to his own country to begin unilateral disarmament belongs to the same category. If you only knew how the youngest of Moscow's old square officials laugh at your political wizards. As to Fidel Castro, he frankly scorns the United States, sending his troops to distant adventures from his country right next to yours. However, the most cruel mistake occurred with, with the failure to understand the Vietnam War. Some people sincerely wanted all wars to stop just as soon as possible. Others believe there should be room for national or communist self-determination in Vietnam or in Cambodia, as we see today with particular clarity. But members of the U.S. anti-war movement wound up being involved in the betrayal of Far Eastern nations, in a genocide, in a suffering today imposed on 30 million people there. Do those convinced pacifists hear the moans coming from there? Do they understand their responsibility today, or do they prefer not to hear? 
the American intelligentsia has lost its nerve, and as a consequence, therefore, danger has come much closer to the United States. But there is no awareness of this. Your short-sighted politicians who signed a hasty Vietnam capitulation seemingly gave America a carefree breathing pause. However, a hundredfold Vietnam now looms over you that small Vietnam had been a warning and occasional to mobilize the nation's courage. But if a full-fledged America suffered a real defeat from a small communist half-country, how can the West hope to stand firm in the future? I have had occasion already to say that in the 20th century, democracy has not won any major war without help and protection from a powerful continental ally whose philosophy and ideology it did not question. In World War II against Hitler, instead of winning that war with its own forces, which would certainly have been sufficient, Western democracy grew and cultivated another enemy which would prove worse and more powerful yet. As Hitler never had so many resources and so many people, nor did he offer any attractive ideas or have such a large number of supporters in the West. A potential fifth column as the Soviet Union. At present, such Western voices already have spoken of obtaining power protection from a third power against aggression in the next world conflict. If there is one, in this case, the shield will be China. But I would not wish such any outcome to any country in the world. First of all, it is against a doomed alliance with evil. Also, it would grant the United States a respite. But when at later date, China with its billions of people would turn around armed with American weapons, America itself would fall prey to a genocide similar to the one perpetrated in Cambodia in our days. That has so much relevance to what's going on today. Like this was made, this was written in the latter seventies, and we can see it still happening. The same things are happening on loop. Yeah, today. I, I guess the difference here is that he thinks that Vietnam would grow. Mm to be another part of this USSR alliance and would just, you know, fight back. Mm. He he critiques and says, you know what, in World War II, we could have done it without the the Soviet Union Mm. and just fought and took over Europe. Yeah. And therefore, you wouldn't give the Eastern Europe side to the Soviet Union. Mm. Uh, But it's also the idea of the betrayal that, you know, you gave yourself a breathing pause, but these enemies would grow stronger. Yeah. And come back against you. So, you know, you talk about the genocide in Cambodia. Mm. Um, you talk about betraying uh, the countries in the Far East that mm. were neighboring with the communist countries. Yeah. Well, uh, how are you going to stand up to them in well, the future? Well, the way, well, what happened was the I think the, the West went to the world with here are our values, here are our ideas, uh, things like individuality, freedom, liberty, these sort of ideas. They took them out there and then said, hey, do you, do you want to join us with this? But then when push came to shove, they pulled back and left them and left these countries on their own. Yeah. Uh, but what I guess he's saying is that in World War II, you know, mm. Western countries allied with the Soviet Union to yeah. fight against Germany. Another evil. Yeah. Right. So using enemy, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Sort yeah, of idea. Yeah. But then now you had a Cold War, which mm. now the Soviet Union is using American or American aid to fight against Americans. Yeah. And so he's saying, you know, be careful about uh, allying with China to yeah. fight against the Soviet Union because Chinese will, will now fight back against you. Later. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now, you know what? Um, you know, the Soviet Union has collapsed. Mm. And you had the Russian Federation. Yeah. But 
we can see China is t- clearly antagonistic towards mm. America. Well, if we bring this back home to Australia, we've bundled up to China, and the uh, was it um, the university system, for example? Yeah. So universities started working with China to bring in international students because there was a lot of money there, and they were getting really, really wealthy. As soon as coronavirus hit, obviously you can't have international students coming over the border anymore, mm-hmm. and now we're seeing the the ramifications of that decision of buddying up to China with the universities because they're now broke, pretty much. But I think it's also uh, with coronavirus that um, manufacturing, everything's done overseas. Yeah, manufacturing's another thing. When international borders close, Mm. you need to build your own capacity to protect your own population. Mm. Um, that's not there. Yeah, and well, we, well, we, well, coronavirus is, I think, one of the outcomes of, that, of it has actually been to demonstrate the the false sense of security that we've, that we've built for ourselves, that we can have our way of life, the things that we enjoy, even if we've shipped all our manufacturing over to China. Mm-hmm. And if China then shuts down because they're dealing with a, with a, cri- with a crisis like that, we can't get their stuff. Um, my wife and I were trying to buy a dishwasher that broke. Yeah. And we went to the uh, kitchen store and went, okay, um, what do you have in stock? Oh, we've got nothing in stock. It's not going to get here for at least two or three months. We end up getting a dishwasher, which is yeah. good because it has broken. <laughs> Literally just stopped working, stop stop cleaning dishes. We're like, okay, this is weird. But yeah. went, went and solved that. But we went in, went into the talk to the guy going, okay. We aren't interested in the flashiest thing. We just need a dishwasher, A, that works, B, that you have in stock. Mm-hmm. And luckily, they actually had one in stock. But we were looking at the inventory list and everything, because it was being manufactured in China, or essentially overseas, because we weren't reliant on our own supply chain, you couldn't get the product. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking this is this is now, you know, this is one of the things that he's saying against convergence, against mm. the globalization. Yeah. Side. You need to stand up on your own feet, and you stand on your own convictions as well. Yeah, and it is, and it is a balance. It's not a like if we look at if we critique some of some of the stuff that Trump was saying, for example, with America first, make America great, that sort of idea. Like that's not inherently a bad thing. The idea that America should uh, no, it's logical. It is, it's it's a high logical, but um, there's a ba- there's a balancing act between. Other country, between countries cooperating together for their mutual benefit, but also not meaning that each of those countries become wholly reliant on one of their neighbors mm-hmm. for everything. Because if the relationship then sours, that country is toast. Yeah. Uh, humanism and its consequences. How has this unfavorable relationship of forces come about? How did the West decline from its triumphal march to its present sickness? Have there been fatal turns and loss of direction in its development? It does not seem so. The West kept advancing socially in accordance with its proclaimed intentions with the help of brilliant technological progress, and all of a sudden itself found in its present state of weakness. This means that the mistakes must be at the root, at the very basis of human thinking in the past centuries. I refer to the prevailing Western view of the world, which was born during the Renaissance and found its political expression from the period of Enlightenment. It became the basis for government and social science and can be defined as rationalistic humanism or humanistic autonomy, the proclaimed and enforced autonomy of man from any higher force above him. It can also be called orthropocentricity. 
with the man seen as the center of everything that exists. The turn introduced by the Renaissance evidently was inevitable historically. The Middle Ages has come to a natural end by exhaustion, becoming an intolerable despotic repression of man's physical nature in favor of the spiritual one. Then, however, we turn our backs upon the spirit, embrace all that is material with excessive and unwarranted zeal. This new way of thinking, which has imposed on, its, on us its guidance, did not admit the existence of intrinsic evil in man, nor did it see any higher task than attainment of happiness on earth. Based modern Western civilization on a dangerous trend to worship man and his material needs, everything beyond physical well-being and accumulation of material goods, all other human requirements and characteristics of a subtler and higher nature were left outside of the area of attention of state and social systems, as if human life did not have any superior sense. That provided access for evil, of which is in our days there is a free and constant flow. Merely freedom does not in the least solve all the problems of human life, and it even adds a number of new ones. However, in early democracies, as in American democracy at the time of its birth, all individual human rights were granted because man is God's creature. That is, freedom was given to individual conditionally, in assumption of his constant religious responsibility. Such was the heritage of the preceding thousands of years. 200 or even 50 years ago, it would have seemed quite impossible in America that an individual be, could be granted boundless freedom simply for the satisfaction of his instincts or whims. Subsequently, however, all such limitations were discarded everywhere in the West. The total liberation occurred from the moral heritage of Christian centuries with the great reserves of mercy and sacrifice. Such state systems were becoming increasingly and totally materialistic, the West ended up by truly enforcing human rights, sometimes even excessively, but man's sense of responsibility to God and society grew dimmer and dimmer. In the past decades, the legalistically selfish aspect of Western approach and thinking has reached its final dimension and the world wound up in a harsh spiritual crisis and a political impasse. All the glorified technological achievements or progress, including the conquest of outer space, do not redeem the 20th century's moral poverty, which no one could imagine even as late in the 19th century. Oh, that is That is so rich. Uh, <laughs> it is so cutting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think in a, uh, if I can rephrase and just paraphrase it, yeah. is that the root of all this stuff that we're talking about is mm. that Western thinking just sees material and the human. Mm. Um, there is only humanity in the material world, nothing else. It is divorced from spiritual life and spiritual authority. And so Western culture survived only because it stood in the foundations that, you know, that Had come before. an inherited thing mm -hmm. that, you know, God, of God, Christianity, and the high spiritual mm -hmm. authority. However, its spiritual foundation has eroded over time. Yeah. And so he actually quotes Karl Marx that communism is naturalized humanism. Yeah. Lade also say that the French Revolution is, in contrast to the American Revolution, the French Revolution I think is a is also a, per, a more perfect a perfect picture of what happens when Enlightenment thinking, humanist thinking, is taken to its inevitable conclusion. Yeah, the excesses of the the humanist regime, you have the reign of terror mm. because man because because they worships. 
and you end up with the cult of Stalin. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Or um, or you have you know certain uh, communist countries saying, yeah. you know what, I am the ultimate authority. Yeah, I don't have to do this, and therefore I can mm. put millions of people in prison. Because pretty because pretty much both capitalism in the West, well, actually not only capitalism, it's more Western thinking, Western philosophy, and communism. Both of them are hierarchies. Both of them have to have something at the top as the all as essentially the all-powerful uh, entity, essentially. Mm-hmm. For in the West, our heritage is that we had God as the top. Yeah. And that and then he and he was he was the one who bestowed upon us the moral foundation that we then live our lives. Mm-hmm. In communism, they threw that away. Yeah. Nietzsche talks about what happens when we kill God. And in communism, enter, enter Lenin, enter Stalin. They are then the top, then everything flows down from them. Mm. So he says here, I am not examining here the case of a world war disaster and the changes which it produced in society. As long as we wake up every morning under a peaceful sun, which we have to lead an everyday life. There is disaster, however, which has already been underway for quite some time. I'm referring to the calamity of a despiritualized and irreligious humanistic consciousness. To such consciousness, man is a touchstone in judging and evaluating everything on earth. Imperfect man who is never free of pride, self-interest, envy, vanity, and dozens of other defects. We are now experiencing the consequences of mistakes which has not been noticed at the beginning of the journey. On the way from the Renaissance to our days, we have enriched our experience. But we have lost the concept of a supreme, complete entity which used to restrain our passions and our irresponsibility. We have placed too much hope in political and social reforms, only to find out we were being deprived of our most precious uh, possession, our spiritual life. In the East, it is destroyed by the dealings and machinations of the ruling party. In the West, commercial interests tend to suffocate it. This is the real crisis. The split in the world is less terrible than the similarity of the disease plaguing its main sections. If humanism was right in declaring that man is born to be happy, he would not be born to die. Since his body is doomed to die, his task on earth evidently must be of a more spiritual nature. It cannot be unrestrained enjoyment of everyday life. It cannot be the search for the best ways to obtain material goods and then cheerfully get the most out of them. It has to be the fulfillment of a permanent earnest duty so that one's life journey may become an experience of moral growth, so that one may leave life a better human being than one started it. It is imperative to review the table of widespread human values. Its present incorrectness is astounding. It is not possible that assessment of the president's performance be reduced to the question of how much money one makes or of an unlimited availability of gasoline. Only voluntary, inspired self-restraint can rise man above the world's stream of materialism. It would be retrogression to attach oneself today to the ossified formulas of the Enlightenment. Social dogmatism leaves us completely helpless in front of the trials of our time. Even if we are spared destruction by war, our lives will will have to change if we want to save life from self-destruction. We cannot avoid revising the fundamental definitions of human life and human society. Is it true that man is above everything? Is there no superior spirit above him? Is it right that man's life and society's activities have to be determined by material expansion in the first place? Is it permissible to promote such expansion to the detriment of our spiritual integrity? 
If the world has not come to its end, it has approached a major turn in history. Equal importance to the turn from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. It will exact from us a spiritual upsurge. We shall have to rise to a new height of vision, to a new level of life, where our spiritual nature, where our physical nature will not be cursed as in the Middle Ages. But even more importantly, our spiritual being will not be trampled upon as in the modern era. This ascension will be similar to climbing onto the next anthropologic stage. No one on earth has any other way left but upward. <laughs> it's a good speech. It is, and it digs deep into the cultural problems without Bible bashing, I believe. Yeah. Like, it, it shows you why. And it, it talks you and takes your hand through yeah. all the issues within the, the nation, from the government to the media to the how materialistic and humanistic people can be yeah. to the law and it says this is empty like yeah. th- you are you are just sort of corroding you are mm. a shadow of your ancestors Form, of your former self well yeah. former self as well as the ancestors like the greatest mm. generation the guys yeah. who fought world war ii yeah where are the next generation of people coming mm. up that would stand for australia america yeah they don't want to they're comfortable where yeah. they are it's it's almost it's stagnating almost but um but, also, it, but he also but and you're right you're right that he doesn't treat this as like a bible bashing bashing over the head with a bible sort of idea it's that he's not pointing to just turn to religion religion will solve all your problems because he rightfully points out that if you put religion in the place uh the dogmatic religion in place of the Enlightenment thinking, then you've seen that you see that in the Middle Ages. You see the political corruption that emerges from that. That, that there is no there is no actual morality that's coming from that. It's just another form of legalism. But without it, right? You but just without live in a modern it, age filled exactly. with commercials and TV yeah, and material goods. Exactly. So you need that. He really is advocating for this balance, really, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. I think you know what I'm now disappointed is is mm. like instead of the churches that you have a message like Solzhenitsyn shows it like mm. there is a spiritual need the church has a critical role to fill that yeah. need because that is mm. that can shape the direction of the nation yeah well it's guiding it's guiding the soul of the nation yeah so it's, it's not it's, it's not individual human rights it's yeah. human obligations yeah well I, th- I really think that there's something worth to be had here the idea that you have both the three things, the mind, the body, and the soul that makes up a human being. And I think that the Enlightenment feeds or nourishes the mind. It's, it's encouraging our intellectualism, our desire to discover and learn how things work. But you've also got that spirit that you've also got this spiritual component as well. And I think that that's been starved by this incessant need to uh, push or to remove the the foundation stones that our society has been built upon yeah. that that moral framework and moral foundation mm. um yeah anyway, um what i'll do is you know for the sake of time i'll let you wrap it up but what i've got i've still got more pages but i'll mm. take that into my conclusion sure because that's more i can just read it out yeah. and just read out the responses mm. to his to his speech but yeah. um, i'll let you go through right now yeah on your closing thoughts mm. and reflections well, close, closing thoughts is either 
go onto YouTube or go on go onto the internet and either listen to or read this speech. The whole speech. The whole speech. The whole speech in con- in context. Yeah. It is it is 50, it is forty five minutes, fifty minutes long. Do it in do it in bites if you don't have that time. But I think it's really important that people listening to look at this speech because there's so much here. There's so much valuable insight that's in here that this guy gets. I think a lot right. Mm-hmm. Closing thoughts here would be, I think that we're, I, I, I certainly feel like we're spinning from crisis to crisis, especially over the easily the last 20 odd years that I've, I've been alive on this earth. I can, I can look back and see we're just rolling from crisis to crisis. It's not actually stopping or getting better. It's just continuing. It's always getting worse. Um, and I think it's in, in some, in some way, there's a sense that it's not as it should be. Mm-hmm. And, we, and I think Solzhenitsyn rightfully points out that we're out of balance that our society, our culture has become out of balance where we've prioritized this legalistic uh, earth-based enlightenment thinking and we've starved out or minimized the morality, the, the moral foundation that our society was actually built on that is what made it understand or uh, embrace the enlightenment thinking to begin with. So it's almost like that because we're out of balance, we get the sense of it's the what we're doing as a culture, as a society, as a people, is not—it's not right. Yeah. We're not—we're not—we're um, not making the right decisions. We're actually just perpetuating, making the problems either worse or just kicking the can down the road. Yeah, I'm not sure like how you have in your workplace, but like I have guys who are like approaching retirement. Yeah, and they would always have the. The cookie cutter, uh, you know, the life like, you know, I'm there to work so I can get a house, then mm. have my family, then have grandkids. Yeah. Then I'm also aiming to get my superannuation topped up mm. and then I'll retire and I'll die. Yeah. And like, you always hear about the money bit. Why the money? Why is it? Why do they therefore work? The material. For the money to yeah. keep more things. That's what he said. You know, Solzhenitsyn said. Yeah. Life is not just about accumulating more things. Yeah. But that's what they do. And it's like, that seems a bit empty and sad yeah. because that's all you're living for is for retirement but well, there's no guarantee that you even live through the um, retirement because yeah. as he says more man is born to die yeah well that's the that's the thinking of the egyptian pharaohs i mean they get bar- they they mummified they were mummified and then buried with all their stuff mm-hmm. it's like that was their thinking of i'll accumulate all my earthly possessions and i'll take them with me into the afterlife it's that it's that same sort of notion but um I think Solzhenitsyn here, though, is he's back back in seventy eight. He is he's he was talking to college uh, college graduates. Yes, uh, and it's a call to um, a call to take up the challenge to change to change the trajectory. And I think that that is true back then, and it's it's as true back then as it is today. We still haven't achieved that balance. It, we're still, I would say unevenly weighted towards the legalism and the enlightenment that that will provide this materialism will provide uh everything to sustain us and i think that because we're starving our spirit our soul if you would then well yeah that's that's possible i think that they, they, that's the heart of why things aren't going right right now yeah um it's like he's trying to tell them it's not just Pursuit of happiness, right? Yeah. You know, we think of pursuit of happiness as in feeling happy. Yeah. But how about what is it really? Being, how about being happy and yeah. being content with yeah. what you have, what we are and what you have? Yeah. Rec- rec- recognizing that 
we have a ton good in this country especially. But you turn around, everyone is unhappy. Everyone's depressed. Mental yeah. health is going through the roof. Yeah. And, you, and it, it's worth stopping and asking, why is that? What's going on? And yes, we're understanding what mental health is, how it, what, or understanding more about how the brain works and responds. But you've then got to come to the question, the question of why are fe- people feeling this way? Yeah. And this is, a, and this is not me saying I have the, the answer to every single one, but it's, I think it's, I think one thing we're doing here is we're, Ask, we're starting trying to start the conversation of asking these interesting questions and going, why are people unhappy? Yeah. I, why are I, people not satisfied? I'm, I'm now a bit more disappointed in that you're the church because um, like they have the gospel message, right? Mm. And, they, and they show you the problem that you're going to yeah. die, yeah. therefore you can live forever. But Solzhenitsyn in his speech mm. shows you how deep that hole is yeah. in society as mm. well as in yourself. Yeah. And because it's a very deep hole. Well, it's because the, I think that in the same way we we're talking about uh, moral courage of the nation, it's also the moral courage of the church to stand up to and to stand up, to make a stand and also to say uncomfortable things, to say uncomfortable truths. Like at no point, the church in America, for example, did they were they pointing out the failings of the materialism, the materialistic attitudes that were developing uh in the 20th century so they failed in their moral in their uh, moral or spiritual duty to in their job yeah so i think i think that there's a as i said read read or listen to this speech because there is so much of so much insight here would you read any of his books i think so yeah maybe uh, maybe audible that's something probably like that. yeah yeah <laughs> that's, quite, that's probably not a bad idea all right Anyway, all right. Um, I will wrap it up there. Yeah. Well, thanks, uh, thanks, uh, listeners, and thanks to yeah, Pat. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Really appreciate it. All Good right. to be back. As we reflect on Solzhenitsyn's stinging words on the West, we need to note that he says that truth is seldom pleasant, it is almost invariably bitter, and he wants us to see him not as an adversary, but from a friend. Friends tell the truth out of love because it's the right thing to do, whilst lies may seem comforting, but they are inevitably empty. Like a doctor, he recognizes the symptoms of the flaws in USSR and in the West. He takes them to its logical conclusion. He shows the Western decadence and its moral poverty. The whole in human hearts and in society shows that the West was no longer its former self, nor can it sustain its competitive edge by pure technological progress. What is the West deficient in? Is it politics? Is it ideas? Is it technology? No, Solzhenitsyn reminds us that the world is split apart the world is split from its spiritual life to return it to its roots and instill in discipline and self-restraint is the next part of human ascension and the next stage in human anthropology 
it's time to stop preaching about human rights, but to talk about human obligations. It is a remarkable insight into both 20th and 21st century man. This ends the main episode on a review of The World Split Apart by Solzhenitsyn. We'll aim to look at the reflections and reactions in a short episode soon. If you like this episode and podcast, please like and share with your friends and subscribe. You can reach us at thefireindesert at gmail.com or Twitter at fireindesert. Music is Outfoxing the Fox by Kim McLeod at incomtech.com. And thank you for listening to The Fire in the Desert, conversations about life, culture, and society. Thank you.